Welcome to the Aerospace Engineering Podcast. My name is Reiner Groh, Research Fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, and on this podcast I have conversations with aerospace pioneers about new technologies at the cutting edge of aerospace design and research. This episode of the Aerospace Engineering Podcast is brought to you by AnaliSwift. Do you work in the design and analysis of aerospace structures and materials? If so, AnaliSwift's innovative engineering software, SwiftComp, may be the solution you're seeking. Used either independently for virtual testing of aerospace composites or as a plugin to power conventional FEA codes, SwiftComp delivers the accuracy of 3D FEA in seconds instead of hours. A general purpose multi-scale modeling program, SwiftComp provides an efficient and accurate tool for modeling aerospace structures and materials featuring anisotropy and heterogeneity. SwiftCom quickly calculates the complete set of effective properties needed for use in macroscopic structural analysis. It also accurately predicts local stresses and strains in the microstructure for predicting strengths. Find out how others in composites are saving time while improving accuracy, considering more design options, and arriving at the best solution more quickly. A no-cost academic partner program is now available for eligible universities. For free trial, visit analyswift.com. SwiftComp. Write results right away. This episode is also sponsored by StressEbook.com, which is an online hub for you if you're interested in aerospace stress engineering. StressEbook.com provides world-class engineering services and online courses on the stress analysis of aircraft structures, as well as a free ebook and blog. No matter if you're a junior or senior structural analyst, StressEbook.com provides you with the skills and know-how to become a champion in your workplace. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh... Tranquility base here. The Eagle has landed. Veronica Foreman is a payload engineer at the small satellite launch provider, Virgin Orbit. Before starting her career at Virgin Orbit, Veronica earned a number of academic accolades, including an Outstanding Undergraduate Researcher Award at Georgia Tech and a Best Master's Thesis Award at MIT. What I find especially impressive about her master's work on small satellite constellations is that Veronica considered both design of constellations as well as the economic and policy challenges to small satellite mission success, thereby providing a very holistic body of research on the topic. As Virgin Orbit's mission is to be the premier dedicated launch service for small satellites, Veronica is seemingly at the perfect place. One of the key features of Virgin Orbit's launch design is that the rocket is air-launched by dropping it from the wing of a Boeing 747. As Veronica explains in this episode, this capability provides Virgin Orbit unique advantages in terms of providing a dedicated launch service for small satellites. So in this episode of the Aerospace Engineering Podcast, Veronica and I discuss Virgin Orbit's vision, the unique advantages and challenges of an air-launched rocket system, and some of their key engineering technologies, such as hybrid additive subtractive machining and an all-carbon structure. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Virgin Orbit's Veronica Foreman. Veronica, welcome to the podcast. Hi, nice to be here. 
So before we delve into Virgin Orbit, I'd like you to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your career so far. So how did you get into engineering and uh, what is it that you do today? Uh, so I did my undergraduate degree at Georgia Tech in Atlanta in aerospace engineering. Um, and while I was there, I did my first research project really focused on small satellite system design. Um, and then from there, I moved on to MIT, where I did two master's degrees, one with an emphasis on space systems engineering, focused on uh, constellation design, implementation, cost and risk forecasting, kind of everything that went into constellation design. Um, and the second one was on technology and space policy, um, really focusing on the, the policy challenges to small satellite mission success, small satellite constellations in particular. Um, and that thesis actually won best thesis at MIT, which was pretty cool, um, because then it was kind of a no-brainer when I wanted to move into industry that I wanted to look for a place that valued small satellites as much as I did. Um, so, of course, I wound up at Virgin Orbit. Great. That, well, congratulations for getting that award. That sounds great. <laughs> so you've just uh, mentioned Virgin Orbit. So what is the vision of Virgin Orbit? What is it that the company has set out to solve? Uh, we believe really, really strongly in the mission of small satellites. So we want to streamline the launch process for them. Um, and that means not just kind of enabling space veterans to do missions in new ways, um, but really focusing on ways that we can bring new players into the fold and diversify the market a little bit, whether that's small businesses or student groups. Um, and I'm a payload engineer here, so my team really focuses on the integration of the satellite to the rocket, the transportation to the launch vehicle, um, and then ultimately getting that satellite successfully into space. Um, so it's fun that kind of our overall mission is making those small satellite missions a success, and that's what I get to work on every day. Great, sounds fascinating. So you've, you've just mentioned that you, you're trying to diversify kind of what can be done in terms of small satellites and who can launch small satellites. So could you talk perhaps a little bit about what are the current bottlenecks in terms of launching small satellites? There are relatively few dedicated small sat launch providers. Um, Rideshares are, are exciting because they offer a lower cost option for small satellites to get to space, but they don't offer the same kind of schedule control that a dedicated small satellite launcher does. Um, you might be paying less for your overall ride, right? But you're still kind of sharing the ride with everybody else. Um, so that kind of creates this backlog of, well, I need to go to this orbit. Who else can go with me? It's kind of like setting up a carpool. Um, whereas a company like Virgin Orbit is more like a dedicated FedEx almost. Like I have this satellite today. I need to get it in this place on this day. How do we get it there? Great. Um, so, I mean, there seem to be quite a number of, of, of companies starting up in the US and Europe, and I think also down in Australia and New Zealand who've, you know, want to provide this dedicated launch service. So how are you differentiating yourself? Um, so we're different by virtue of air launch, which I actually think is a really novel implementation of the small satellite kind of dedicated launch vehicle. Um, but we also have a really strong focus on small satellites in particular. That's a sector of the market that has been neglected for a really long time. Um, and that's one of those things that the more we can cater to that market, the more power small satellites will have. Um, and broadly speaking, like we're glad that there's a lot of other companies out there too. Um, there's definitely room for more than one small sat launch provider. So improving access to space for everybody kind of benefits us all. And we really focus on how we can benefit our customer by kind of sending small satellites specifically to space um, wherever they want to go. Right. So, you know, you've, you've, so you've just mentioned the, the air launched system. So let's delve a little bit deeper into the technical side of things. So as far as I'm aware, the current 
system is comprised of two separate components, one being Launcher 1 and then the other Cosmic Girl. So can you explain the function of these two subsystems? Uh, so Launcher 1 is our two-stage expendable rocket. Um, and it's cool because I think when you think about um, new space technology, we talk a lot about uh, the way that the technology is changing. But Launcher 1 relies on proven, reliable technology that we've seen before. Um, and then what's interesting about the way we implement it is one that we've got a pretty cutting edge manufacturing process here. But the other thing is that we actually lift Launcher 1 to its drop altitude on the wing of a 747, which is Cosmic Girl, our carrier aircraft. Um, that is what we use to lift Launcher 1 up to about 35,000 feet, which is where we release the rocket. Um, we actually hold it in the fifth engine spot on the wing of the 747, which is pretty neat. Um, and we've got a, a custom designed kind of launch lifting fixture there that we call the pylon. Um, so the pylon on the wing of Cosmic Girl is what we use to hold Launcher 1. Um, and when we get up to our drop altitude, we release the rocket and Launcher 1 goes to space. Oh, wow. Fascinating. I didn't even know that the 747 had a had a fifth spot for an engine. Yeah. That's very cool. Uh, yeah, most people don't. It's um, It turns out when you design a highly optimized uh, aircraft engine, the easiest place to transport it is on the outside of the airplane where it's supposed to be. Um, so the 747 has a fifth spot where the wing was actually designed to transport a fifth engine, even though that engine never would have been functional. Um, there's kind of a spot on the wing that was already designed to carry something important. Um, so we decided that's where we should put our rocket. Right, great. So, I mean, most rocket companies or launch providers, they launch vertically from a launch pad. So what are the advantages of this air launching approach? And perhaps also, what are some of the particular challenges of being able to implement it? Um, so air launch comes with a number of advantages. Um, we have a really wide range of orbits. We can kind of accommodate a high launch rate. And we have the ability to bypass some of those congested federal ranges, which are a lot of the ground launch systems you're talking about. Um, and I think another thing that's interesting from an engineering perspective is that the location of your ground launch station really dictates the orbits you can reach. Um, so we, by having a movable launch pad, um, we have a lot more control over the orbits that we can send satellites to. And for small satellites that have traditionally kind of been stuck in whatever orbit they can get, um, not only having a dedicated vehicle, but also having a dedicated launch pad that we can move wherever we need to move it, gives them a lot more orbital control. Um, and on the payload engineering side, um, that's really what I get excited about because it allows small satellites to do kind of everything that they're really capable of. Um, the challenges are what you would expect. Um, it's a highly complex system. We really need to make safety a priority. Um, we have a custom designed autonomous flight safety system for just that purpose to really make sure that the people on board the aircraft and the satellites themselves are protected. Um, but other than that, we've got a we've got a really dedicated team that are working toward addressing those challenges kind of one at a time, making sure we address them all. So great. So I guess both Virgin Galactic and Virgin Orbit are looking at some form of air-launched rocket system. Um, so, you know, looking in from the outside, it seems to me that there must be some form of overlap, perhaps also in terms of the engineering and the implementation. So uh, is that the case? Has one project been, been inspired by the other? Um, so Launcher 1 did originally begin as a Virgin Galactic project back in 2012. So the vehicle itself has a great deal of, of design investment in it already. Um, 
But other than that, the companies are very different. Virgin Orbit and Virgin Galactic um, split officially. Virgin Orbit became a company in 2017. Um, and that's largely because the engineering that goes into these systems is quite different. Um, obviously, by virtue of both being air launch, we share a couple of um, kind of licensing and regulatory things in common. Um, and kind of interestingly, we have the same pilots or some of the same pilots, which is really neat. Um, but other than that, we've really allowed Virgin, Orb Virgin Orbit to focus on catering to small satellites and Virgin Galactic to specialize in suborbital space tourism. Um, and I'm sure you know that suborbit and orbit are pretty different technical challenges. Um, so when you start looking at the difference between the energy it takes to make those flights happen, um, the carrier aircraft then need to be fairly different and specialized to the type of work we're doing. Um, so because the contexts are so different, the projects are are largely not overlapping, um, but we do share anything and everything we can with respect to safety. Um, so largely we're separate, but anytime we're trying to keep people safe, um, we're swapping notes. Right. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. So um, you, you mentioned your, your moving platform or basically the fact that because you're air launched, you can move your launch pad around anywhere around the globe, which I guess means that you have, you know, you've access to both, you know, polar orbits and some synchronous orbits. It, so what, what does that mean in terms of the types of missions that you can fly? What, what are the types of, you know, satellites or perhaps constellations that Virgin Orbit is looking to launch for customers? Um, satellites do everything now, which is really pretty cool. Um, whether it's telecom or tracking ships and planes, delivering space-based internet, um, precision agriculture even, uh, small satellites really do it all, which I think is a fascinating kind of, um, I don't know, it's kind of quintessential new space that we have this tiny shoebox satellite that can do almost as much now as some of the larger monolithic satellites used to be able to do. Um, and we typically carry between 300 and 500 kilograms to low Earth orbit. Um, so that means we might be taking one kind of larger small satellite or a collection of several. Um, and so we do have a couple of constellations already on contract, um, which is one of those cases where we might be launching several spacecraft at a time. Um, but really, small sats kind of uh, they sweep the entire spectrum in terms of what they're capable of. And so far, our customers are that diverse. Right. Perhaps just a little follow up on the constellation side, given that you did some of your research at MIT on constellations. Could you explain what constellations do? Why would we want to have a constellation of satellites? Um, so a constellation is generally thought of as two or more spacecraft working collaboratively toward a common goal. Um, so that means the, the spacecraft might be different from each other and kind of work together, or they might be several copies of the same satellite designed to provide better overall um, Earth coverage is a good example. Um, one of the real benefits there is that you might have higher revisit time or kind of better resolution imagery um, if you're doing an Earth observation, observation mission, for example. Um, but it also means you have higher fault tolerance. Um, if you design a satellite constellation that really needs six satellites to do its job, but you launch eight, um, you have two backups in orbit already, which is really cool. Um, and then any day you're using all eight satellites, you kind of got extra bang for your buck. Um, and then if something were to happen to one of them, you can go back to your nominal mission architecture. Um, so constellations are a great implementation of small satellites in particular, um, because small satellites are generally less expensive and faster to develop. Um, so they allow for more flexible and agile constellation missions. Great, that was really helpful. So um, going back to some of the, the manufacturing uh, uh, technologies that you that you mentioned. So 
I guess one of the key things that I saw on the Virgin Orbit website is that you were targeting a production volume of around 24 rockets a year or about around two, two a month. So what is, you know, how can you target such a high manufacturing rate? What is it that allows you to do this? Um, our production team is incredible. And a lot of the technologies that they've implemented are really cutting edge. Um, and so again, kind of leveraging a reliable rocket design, but saying how do we do that in the most innovative way possible um, is one of the ways that we're really targeting that high production rate. Um, we've actually been one of the first companies to adopt a hybrid additive subtractive manufacturing machine, um, which actually reduces our production time by an order of magnitude. Um, something that used to take a year to develop might take us only a month. Um, and that's a really cool implementation of, of 3D printing, but also subtractive manufacturing, which is a little bit more novel. Um, most people are familiar with 3D printing or additive manufacturing. Um, the fact that we're doing it as a hybrid and we're both adding to the component and taking away from the component in the same machine is pretty cool. Wow, I've never even heard of that. I, I mean, yeah, as you say, I, I've, I've heard of 3D printing. I'm quite uh, well versed in that, but I didn't know that you could incorporate the two in a single machine. That sounds very cool. Yeah, we have uh, we have one of the first ones here in our factory in Long Beach. So the next time you're in California, you'll have to come by and see it. All right, great. I might have to take you up on that invitation. But yeah, so uh, me personally, as a researcher in, in composite structures, I'm naturally interested in your all carbon structure. So what are some of the benefits that you derive from the all carbon structure? Um, so carbon fiber, which I'm sure you know, um, has a much better strength to weight ratio than a metal structure. Um, and basically anything on Launcher One that we can make out of carbon composite, we have. Um, and that means that our overall structure is much lighter. So the mass that we can take to orbit is greater. Um, and that's a pretty direct trade-off in the actual engineering, um, which is a kind of a cool, a cool way that we implement both carbon fiber benefits um, and again, kind of target whatever the small satellite customer might need. So one of the, the challenges that I keep hearing about is that it's very, very difficult to have uh, carbon fiber tanks with cryogenic fluids like liquid oxygen. And I read yeah. that you, that what you're doing, that you actually have uh, linerless tanks. Now, I'm sure that all is very, it's a probably proprietary information, but can you maybe talk about some of the benefits and the, and the challenges of linerless tanks? Why is it so difficult to design them? Uh, the challenge is really getting the polymer matrix within the composite to perform at both cryogenic temperatures, like you mentioned, and elevated temperatures during launch. Um, you're right, that's kind of the secret sauce, though. How we're making that happen is one of the things that makes us a, a cool virgin company. Um, but the benefit is really how much mass we are saving in the overall vehicle um, and how much control we have over the design process. We're a really vertically integrated company. Um, we do almost all of that carbon composite manufacturing here in-house, right? Um, and that's a really cool implementation of our manufacturing machine, um, or I'm sorry, our manufacturing team. Um, we do a lot of a lot of the hand layups, all of that work here um, in our factory in Long Beach. Um, and that means that we have a lot of control over the design so we can trace that component from the very beginning and kind of address some of those challenges later on by understanding the whole life cycle of the part. Wow, very cool. So how's the, the project developing and what are some of the, the milestones in the near future for Virgin Orbit? Um, all tests are progressing really well. Um, it's taking us a little longer than we'd initially expected, but our schedule from the beginning was pretty aggressive. 
Um, and we put a real emphasis on safety here. Um, so we're making sure that now we're not just testing components, we're way past individual component testing. Um, we're really focused on testing systems and subsystems in a flight-like configuration so that as we move toward our first orbital flights, um, we understand the performance of the vehicle as a complete system and as a system of subsystems moving forward. Great. So you're kind of building up the pyramid of subsystems, building it up bit by bit until you have you're 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 sure that your overall system works works perfectly. Yeah, and um, and so right now that means that we're really finalizing acceptance tests um, for the engines we're actually going to use on our first orbital flight. Those are in the factory right now. Um, well, one of them is on the test stand, but um, those are the things we're working on right now. Um, and we're simultaneously conducting flight tests and tests of both our avionics and kind of the structural performance overall. Um, so we're seeing a lot of things developed in parallel. Um, but what's neat about that is that as we see it all come together, you're right, we're really building those pieces up so that by the time we're moving toward our first orbital flights, um, we'll really understand the system inside out and backwards. And that's what you want when you're sending something to space. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll be looking forward to seeing, you know, your developments. But, you know, just to finish. So how can listeners keep up with uh, uh, your developments? How, how can they do that either online or offline? Um, online, definitely follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, our communications team is great, so there's a lot of great content on there. Um, our YouTube channel is also really interesting. A lot of great engine development videos and some of our early flight test videos are online, which are really amazing to see. And they really show how close we are. Um, we've made tremendous progress in the last year. So definitely follow us on all of the social media channels. Um, we also have a newsletter. It goes out about once a month. Um, so you can subscribe to that on our website um, and stay up to date with the latest Virgin Orbit news. And like I said, whenever anyone's in California, um, let us know. We'd be happy to give you a rocket factory tour. Great. I can definitely second the videos. I've been watching them over the last couple of years and they're absolutely fascinating. Oh, great. I'm glad. All right. Well, thank you, Veronica, for taking the time. And um, thank you very much for having the conversation. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. If you would like to learn more about Virgin Orbit, then head over to aerospaceengineeringblog.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find show notes about everything we discussed in today's episode. And if you enjoy the Aerospace Engineering Podcast, then there are a number of ways you can support it. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're tuning in. You can share it on social media with your friends and family, or you can support the podcast directly on Patreon. And with that, Thank you very much for listening and talk to you next time.